Welcome to the Portland City Church Podcast. We are a brand new church in the city of Portland, Oregon. Here you'll find all of our weekly messages, so make sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications to stay updated. The study you are about to listen to is from our series on 1 Corinthians called Lost Church. If you're encouraged by this message, we would love to hear about it. Feel free to reach out to us on social media or through our website, portlandcitychurch.org. We are a growing community of believers, so if you live near Portland, we would love to visit us in person at our Sunday morning gathering. Hope to see you there. God bless. All right, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're back in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is really one of those books that uh, once you get into it, it's heavy. It's it's got a lot of truth in there. Um, Before we... Uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians, uh, really, he's in the, the portion of this letter, and he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a church that he had helped start, he had helped pioneer it, and then in just a short little time after he left, the church began to have some problems. And so what Paul does is Paul writes them this letter, and he writes them this letter to correct them and to kind of bring them back on track. And it's so interesting because that's often one of the things that the Lord does in our lives. Many times we can find ourselves, maybe we start to veer and all of a sudden things begin to happen where it's like God is using it to get our attention and using it to bring us back to Him. You know, and that's the amazing thing about the Lord is the Bible says that He does discipline in the same way that you have a a, a parent and a child. God does discipline us, but it's not discipline to punish us. It's not discipline to... You know, I'm just so mad at, the, at this person for messing up. They're done. No, it's discipline to bring us back and to correct us. And that's the amazing thing about the Lord. That's the amazing thing about what he does is everything he does is from a heart of love for us and a heart of compassion for us. In fact, the Bible says that you have that illustration where you have that one lost sheep that strays. And the Bible says that uh, he would leave the 99, the good shepherd, he would leave the 99 to go after that one. And it's this picture of how God, he doesn't look at us as just a number. We're not just robots to God. He looks at us as individuals. One of the interesting things about shepherds in that time is shepherds would actually know the name of each sheep. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have ever seen a flock of sheep, but it's hard to distinguish them, right? They all look the same. You know, I haven't looked at a flock of sheep and been like, oh, yeah, that, they all look different. You know, they all probably have different personalities. No, like you look at a flock of sheep and you're like, they all look the same. Well, a shepherd would know each one individually. And one of the cool things that would happen is, is every night they would have what's called a sheepfold, which is basically they would find an area and a cliff or a little carve out of a mountain. And they would have all of their sheep passed through what was called the door of the sheepfold. And it was basically, let's say you have a little cave in a mountain and you have the shepherd and he would stand at the entrance to that cave and it would be small enough that he could stay there at night and guard it and no one could come in. And what he would do is he would have each sheep pass through what's called the door. And as they would pass through that entrance to the cave, he would kind of rub its hand, he would, he would uh, kind of rub his hands through them to make sure that they didn't get any, uh, uh, they didn't have any uh, wounds or anything that had happened to them throughout their, throughout their travel. And it's this picture of how the way that a shepherd cares for a sheep and how he knows them individually, how he's always 
checking to see if they're okay. He's always looking for if there's any wounds that need to be tended to or anything that needs to be looked at. That's the same kind of care that God has for you and for me. It's that heart of a shepherd. The Bible says that Jesus is what? He said, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. That great love that Jesus has for us, but sometimes in his love, he does what? He corrects us. And it can be hard. Man, there have been times in my life where I look back and God was dealing with me on something and it's almost like you get in trouble. I don't know how many of you guys ever remember at school, right? You get in trouble and you go to the principal's office and it's the worst feeling. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there and you're waiting for your name to be called and then your name gets called and you're like, okay, I gotta go. Like, and you're having butterflies in your stomach. It's just not a good feeling. Or maybe you get in trouble for something and you're just like, man, you just feel like you're just like, I, I, oh, I hate being in trouble. But sometimes God has to discipline us. Why? Because there's no other way for him to correct us. And he does it with so much care and so much love. When you look at the story of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they had royally, royally messed up everything. God had brought them into this abundant land. God had pretty much given them everything they could have wanted. He said when they came into the land, he gave them cities that they didn't build farms that they didn't plant, everything you could imagine, and they royally messed it up because they chose not to worship God. They chose to worship idols. They chose to go after the things of this world. And what happened? They ended up getting carried off and they ended up getting attacked and God allowed them to be taken into captivity for 70 years. And when God brought them back, he gave them one of the most amazing promises in the Bible, and that's Jeremiah 29, 11. Where it says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts to give you a future and a hope. Here there's this moment of just intense discipline where God is just dealing with them on some heavy things. And what does he say to them? He says, listen, he says, in the midst of what you're going through, there is a future and there is a hope. There is something that I'm going to do. In fact, so much so that he would have another prophet say to the children of Israel, that, the, that I'm going to do more for you, and I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> he says, I'm going to do more for you in the future than what I was going to do before. Man, God's grace is so abundant, but there are those times that we have to go through those corrections. And here Paul is correcting this church, and he writes them this letter, and we've, as we've gone through this letter, this letter's got some heavy stuff in it. He doesn't pull any punches. And now he starts getting to the portion of the letter where he's going to now answer some questions that they had. Because the Corinthian church, like many of us, they had questions. And, they're so, and the cool thing about questions is, is you're allowed to ask questions when you become a Christian. Man, you're allowed to ask questions. How many times were the disciples asking Jesus questions? They would pull them aside, hey, uh, Mr. Jesus, we, you know, I mean, we didn't want to say this Jesus in front of everybody, but you know, now that we have you one-on-one, Hey, uh, what did you mean when you said this in that parable? And it's crazy because every time the disciples would ask a question, it would lead to some of the most uh, amazing revelations of truth that we have in Scripture. And it's the same thing with God. Man, I love it that we have a God who doesn't look at us and say, no, you can't ask questions about that or that's off limits. No, in fact, like what we learned about last week, right? The Bible says that when you draw near to him, what does he do? 
He draws near back to you. When you ask questions, what does he do? He responds. And the things that he shows you, the truth he reveals to you, it's amazing things. And so the church at Corinth, they had questions and they wrote to Paul and they had questions in chapter 7 on marriage. And so we see that Paul deals and he answers the question on marriage. And now they had questions on what we would call Christian liberty. How many of you guys have ever heard that term? Christian liberty. Christian liberty. So the title of my message is Liberty or Lawlessness. I was going to title it Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, but I just didn't feel like it would fit. Liberty or Lawlessness. You know, the subject of Christian liberty, when we talk about Christian liberty, what Christian liberty is, is Christian liberty is a Christian's freedom in Christ. And man, we have so much freedom that has been given to us in Christ. Tremendous freedom in Christ. The Bible says that we are not under the law, but we are under grace. There is no law governing your daily life. When you wake up in the morning, it's not like you have to go to your fridge and, you know, okay, I got to, you know, get the rules for today. Okay, so I got to do this, 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 and then God will be pleased with me. There are no rules in Christianity. And it's a scary thought almost. Because you think about it and you're like, man, that's a lot of freedom. But there is tremendous freedom in Christ. There is tremendous liberty in, tr- in Christ. It would be like if you showed up to work tomorrow and upon arriving to work, you got a call from your boss and your boss tells you this. Your boss says, hey, today you can show up whenever you want to show up. You can leave whenever you want to leave. You can take your lunch whenever you want to take your lunch. You can take it as long as you want or as short as you want. You could take one break. You could take 15 breaks. You can do whatever you want to do today. You can work on whatever you want to work on. I'm not going to look. You can do whatever you want to do. That's a tremendous amount of freedom, right? Tremendous amount of freedom. But there's also with that freedom, there comes that warning. There comes that responsibility. And it's the same thing with Christ. There's a great amount of freedom that Jesus has given us. Man, being a Christian, if you're trying to follow God under rules and regulations and just being bound by all these things, you're going to find yourself frustrated and you're going to find yourself discouraged and you're going to end up giving up. Because you're going to be like, man, I just can't meet the standard. Well, the truth is, is we, we can't meet the standard. And that is why Jesus died for our sins. Why? So that if we believe in him and if we have a relationship for him, what did he do? He met the standard. Man, he lived the perfect life. And when we give our lives to him, the Bible says that, he ta- that God takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it to our account. It's like as if we've never sinned. And his mercies are new every morning. You know, there's no rules. There's no uh, uh, regulations that we have to follow in being a Christian. Being a Christian, like what we learned last week, right? It's fellowship. It's intimacy with God. It's relationship. It's oneness. And out of that, man, there's so much joy. There's so much joy. There's so much freedom. But listen, with that freedom, with that freedom of Christian liberty, and it's interesting, I always, when I was writing this study, I kept thinking about uh, Spider-Man. How many of you guys have seen Spider-Man, right? And you remember that quote, with great freedom, or I think it's great freedom or great power. Great power comes great responsibility. And I kept thinking that like, with, and I heard it in, in the character's voice in my head. I'm right. I'm like, 
with great freedom comes great responsibility. Like I was like saying it in his voice in my head. But then I was like, well, no, it's power, not freedom. But anyways, the same thing applies. But with freedom, listen, with freedom, their Bible also gives us some warnings on that freedom. And it gives us three main warnings that we need to be careful of with that freedom that we have in Christ. The first warning that the Bible gives us is not to use liberty or our freedom as a cloak for vice. Basically, not to have the mentality of like, hey, you know, I'm free, so, you know, I, I have the freedom in Christ, so I can go do drugs, or I can go uh, get drunk, or I can go do all of these things, and there's no repercussions for them. It's the freedom to do whatever I want to do with no repercussions. And the Bible warns against that, not using freedom as a cover to go sin. And then the Bible also warns us that with freedom, the Bible says that all things are lawful, but not all things edify. All things are lawful, but not all things build you up. There are some things that do not help your spiritual walk with God. There are some things, and, and often when, you, when, we do, when we look at our lives, when we do that self-evaluation and we look, it's often areas that we can pinpoint and say, yeah, this area is kind of holding me back a little bit with my walk with God. Or this area, you know, every time I do this, even though I may feel like I have the freedom Every time I do this, I always feel convicted or I always feel like it's holding me back from, from following God fully. And there's that warning of not partaking in things that will harm you spiritually. The Bible says all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And then the third warning is being careful not to stumble anybody. And that is what this chapter focuses on. This chapter focuses on not doing anything that would cause someone to stumble. And as we're going to see in this chapter, there's some things that maybe you feel the liberty to do in your life. Maybe you feel that because of the freedom that God has given you, you have the freedom to practice something. But maybe for you, your freedom, it can cause someone else to trip and fall in their relationship with God. And so as we get into it, go ahead and follow along with me in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Go ahead and follow along what he says here. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing as yet he ought to know. So he starts out by talking about knowledge and he talks about love. And he talks about now concerning things offered to idols. Their question was basically this. Their question was, is Back in that culture, you had idol worship. It was a big thing. And so their question was, hey, can I partake? It sounds like such a simple question to go so in-depth on, but it's a very simple question. Their question was, can we eat meat and can we partake of things that were used in idol worship? That was their question. And when you look at idol worship and you kind of see uh, really what it is, idol worship was huge at that time. Going back to the beginning of mankind, idol, idol worship has its roots early on in human history. You see that mankind has always had the tendency to worship something. And in America, it's a little different. America has become more of what we would call a secular nation, which is there's no religion, there's no religious beliefs. But idol worship and the desire to worship, it's in almost everybody. If you look at it, most people will find themselves worshiping something. 
And it doesn't mean that they necessarily get on their face and blah, 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 blah. That doesn't mean that. But we all have a tendency to worship something. Some people worship a hobby. Some people worship a relationship. Some people worship relationships. That idea that they always have to be in a relationship and they go from one relationship to the next. And when they're done with this relationship, they move on to the next person. And it's this constant relationship to relationship. Some people worship a job. Some people worship money. Some people worship sports. We worship many, many different things. And I think the question is this, is who do you worship and what do you worship? And to find out, it's very simple. It's important to look at what do you love most? What do you invest the best of your time in? Not the least of your time. Not at the end of the day when you have a couple minutes and you're like, oh, I'm going to just check the scores on the game. But what do you invest the best of your time in? What do you invest your resources in? What has most of your attention? Listen, you answer those questions, you will have a pretty clear picture of what or who you worship. We all have this tendency to worship something. And at that time, they would worship idols. They would worship different gods. And those different idols, they would always mean something. And so he talks about this and he says, hey, he says, concerning things offered to idols, he says, we know that we have all knowledge. And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the importance of having love as a Christian. Now, why is this so important? Because sometimes people who have liberty and freedom in Christ, they can tend to know a lot. Have you ever met those people that, you know, you can't ever teach them anything because they know everything already? Have you ever met those people? You know, you're trying to tell someone something and they're like, oh yeah, I already know that. Oh yeah, I already got that. Yeah, I'm already good on that. Yeah. And for Christians, there can be this tendency to have this freedom, but we can become proud with it. We have, we kind of know everything and we can become puffed up. And see, knowledge can create, create pride. And pride has been the downfall of many Christians. Prideful people don't receive correction, they don't receive instruction, and most of the time they don't walk in what? In love. He says knowledge puffs up, he says, but love edifies. Listen, prideful people, it often becomes all about them. It becomes all about me. It becomes about me and I and me and that's it. That's the end of story. Pride is dangerous. Because we become so focused on ourselves, and yet Jesus, when he came to this earth, what does he say? He says, I didn't come to be served. He says, I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. See, Christianity, it's it's all about serving and loving one another. Why? Because love edifies. Love builds up. Love can have a positive effect on someone's life and someone's relationship with God. When we come in and we have this mentality of pride and we're just, I know everything, so you know I can't receive from anybody and we are proud. Listen, that does not help anybody out spiritually. 
It doesn't help your spouse out spiritually when we are proud instead of loving. It doesn't help out the relationships in your life when we are proud instead of when we walk in love. Why? Because love, it does what? It builds up. It edifies. It's almost like this word, it's actually used when they would build a building or when they would do construction. And it's this picture of if you're building a house, right? You're building it up. You're putting it together. You're completing a work. That's the word that is used for edify. And when we become prideful, often, listen, you're not building anything. You're often tearing down. So he says, knowledge puffs up. He says, but love edifies. And then he says this, he says, and if anyone thinks... If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. What's he saying there? He's just basically saying, hey, he says, if you think you really know everything, you really don't know everything. And then he says this, he says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And then in verse four, notice what he says. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is no God but one. So he's talking about things that are being offered to idols. And like what we had mentioned, idol worship was very big at that time. It was very big in that culture because each of the gods at that time, they would have a temple. So if you worship the God of this, they would have a temple. And how you would worship oftentimes is you would take an animal and you would take that animal to the temple and you would offer it as a sacrifice. What they would then do, the priests of that temple for that God, for that deity, is they would take that sacrifice and they would put what is called a token, which is a small portion of that animal, and they would offer it as a sacrifice to that God. And then they would take portion of the meat and they would keep that meat for themselves and that would be what they would eat. And then they would give the rest back to the person that was worshiping, back to the person who brought that sacrifice. Sometimes they would have feasts at their temples there. They would have a kind of like a dinner party. It would be if you went to, maybe you were celebrating something or maybe you were getting ready to apply for a job and you would go to this temple and you would offer this sacrifice and then you would have a party and you would literally invite everyone from your community. You would say, come meet me at this temple for a feast, for a dinner, for a party. And it was meat that had been offered to idols It was meat that had been offered to idols. And you'd be asked to partake in that. Now, some of that meat would sometimes work its way into the markets and you would go to a market and it was to the point where if you went to the market, if you were walking down the street and you saw meat there, you wouldn't know if it was offered to idols or not. And he kind of talks about that in chapter 10 when we get there and kind of deals with that situation. But it's this idea that you could potentially be partaking of meat that had been offered and used in a, in a sacrifice to, a, to an idol or to a god. So Paul is saying there, he's saying, concerning the things of meat that has been offered to idols, he said, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other god but one. So he just sets it very straight. He says, listen, he says, we do have knowledge that what? That an idol is nothing. He's almost reassuring them. He's saying, hey, he's saying, because some of these people, they were eating this meat and then their consciences would feel wrecked. They would feel convicted because they'd be like, man, I'm partaking in that worship of an idol. 
their conscience would be messed up. They would go home, they wouldn't be able to think about it. They wouldn't be able to, to feel like they were right with God. They kept feeling like they were messed up. Why? Because they felt like they had partaken in that worship of an idol just because they had eaten that meat. So Paul's kind of reassuring them. He's saying, look, he's saying an idol is nothing. He's saying an idol is a piece of wood. He's saying not only that, he's saying, but there is no other God but one. How beautiful. He says, hey, he says, there's not a bunch of different gods. He says what? He says, there's only one God. And then in verse 5, he says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So he's just basically breaking down. He's saying, listen, he's saying, you guys are worried that you're going to be sinning because you're eating this meat. But understand, an idol is nothing. Just because the meat was offered to an idol doesn't mean that the meat was defiled. He's saying, it, 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 he's saying there, he's saying, listen, he's saying there's only one God. There's only one Lord, and that's Jesus. He's saying these other idols, he's saying they're nothing. They're not different gods. He's saying they have no power. And then he goes on and he says what? He says in verse 7, he says, However, he says there is not in everyone that knowledge. He says, For some with the consciousness of an idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So what's he saying? He's saying, hey, He's saying, I may have that knowledge, he's saying, but not everyone has that knowledge. He says, I may be able to eat a nice steak and not worry about whether it was offered to an idol, or even if it was offered to an idol, I know that there was nothing there, so I'm able to enjoy this nice steak. If you're vegan, I'm sorry to offend you. (laughs) But he's saying, he's saying what he's saying, I'm able to do that. He's saying, but maybe not everyone is. Maybe someone who has just barely become a Christian, they're looking at that and they're like, oh my gosh, like he's eating that meat. Doesn't he know that that meat was offered to that idol and now he's partaking in that idol worship? What is, oh my gosh. See, he says there, he says, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, he says, with that consciousness, knowing that it was offered to an idol, he says, they eat it and their conscience is what it's defiled. And I think it's important to understand what Paul is saying here because here you see Paul's heart. Man, this is a perfect example of love edifying. Paul obviously knew a lot, right? The Apostle Paul, he knew a lot of stuff. It's like Nacho Libre. Oh man, I can't, I can't even go there. Do you, are you guys Nacho Libre fans? Yeah, okay. Oh, man. Oh, man. I can't, don't get me started on Nacho Libre. I'll go all day on Nacho Libre quotes. <laughs> they think I don't know a lot about the gospel, but I do. I do. <laughs> but Paul the Apostle, he knew a lot of stuff. He had a lot of knowledge And yet, what did he do? He doesn't go to the Corinthians and say, dude, you guys are asking me this question about me. Don't you know? Like, doesn't everybody know that? Like, you should know this already. No, no, no. What does he say? He says, hey, he says, some people, they may not know that yet. Some people may not have that knowledge yet. 
And what does he do instead of being proud because of all the knowledge that he knows? No, what does he do? He walks in love. And he says, hey, he says, you may not have that knowledge. Not everyone has that knowledge, and that's okay. And listen, knowledge is important. I don't want to try and paint the picture like, well, we shouldn't know anything because we're just going to become proud. No, knowledge is important. But what kind of knowledge should we pursue? What kind of knowledge should we know? The kind of knowledge we should know, listen, is the knowledge of God. Now, knowing God intimately, just like what we talked about last week, pursuing that fellowship, that relationship with him, that fellowship, God desires that fellowship. See, that is the type of knowledge that we should pursue. Listen, there are a lot of people who know the word of God, but don't know the God of the word. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. Why? He said, he said, listen, he said, you guys have everything down. You have the law memorized. It was interesting. Jewish rabbis in the time of Christ they would have the whole first, today it's the first five books of the Bible that we have. Back then they called it, they referred to it as the Torah. They would have it memorized. Crazy, huh? They would have it legit memorized, locked in. They knew a lot and yet Jesus came and they missed the most important thing. They missed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And they missed Jesus, and they ended up crucifying Jesus. They knew a lot, but they didn't know the God of the Word. And listen, it is that same exact thing with us. There are so many people that know a lot about the Word, but they don't know a lot about the God of the Word. There's an old saying that has always stuck with me, and it says this. It says, it's not how much you get in the Word, it's how much the Word gets in you that matters. And that always stuck with me because I've always wondered, and, and over the years, I've met different people that have known a lot of Scripture, and I've met some people that probably knew more Scripture than I did. And sometimes you talk to them, and you can be intimidated because you're like, man, they're rattling off verses, like they you know, have the whole thing memorized. Sometimes you talk to people and you're like, man, this person doesn't have a social life. They must just read the Bible all day and night because they know so much. But then you see their character. You see how they treat people. You see the way they are and all of a sudden you start to notice, hey, there's something wrong here. This person knows a lot about Scripture, but their character is wrong. It's bad. It's got flaws in it. The way they treat their spouses, the way they treat people, the shady things that they do, all of those things you start to notice and you realize there's a disconnect there. They may know a lot of scripture, they may have spent a lot of time in the word, but I can promise you that a person whose character has not been changed is someone who does not have the word of God in the, abiding in their life. They may know a lot of the word, but they don't know the God of the word. That is what matters more than anything else. Jesus' words to the Pharisees, he said, listen, he said, you think that in this book you have life. He said, but this book points to me. He said, this book points to me. Man, Jesus desires fellowship with us. Knowing God and knowing his word, it should show 
in our character. It should show. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says this. It says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Man, if we say that we have a relationship with God, if we say that we are a Christian, listen, we should walk like a Christian. And it doesn't, like we said, it doesn't put this pressure on us like, oh man, I have to... I have to make some major changes in my life so I can be and walk how he walked. No. We are saved by grace. And we are changed by a relationship with God, by fellowship with God. That's how we're changed. Listen, just coming to church, it's not going to change you. Man, it's that relationship with God. It's spending time. It's getting alone and saying, hey, I'm going to go for a walk. And you go for a walk and you spend time talking with God. Man, there was a season in my life where things were so crazy. My car was my safe place. I would pull up home and it was like crazy at work and it was crazy in life and it was crazy at my house. And so my car would be my sanctuary. I would pull up. I would pull in my backyard. I would park and I would spend an hour or two in there and just hang. Sometimes I'd fall asleep because I was tired. But, <laughs> but I would pray and I would read and I would try and just spend time with God. Why? Because when you spend time with God, it changes everything about you. And so many people get frustrated because they're like, man, I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible and I'm not, I'm not getting anything and I'm, I have no joy and I have no peace. Listen, you maybe read the Bible, but did you fellowship with God? Was your heart open? Or are you holding things back from God? Listen, why is it that some people go unchanged? Why is it that some people spend time reading and they spend time and they rattle off all the verses, but they never show a change? Why is that? It all boils down to the heart. Jesus told the parable of the sower and he said what? He said, a a sower, a farmer went out to sow seed and as he sowed seed some fell by the wayside some fell on good ground some fell on stony ground some fell and the thorns came and choked it out and it paints this picture he talks about how the word of God is a seed and the soil whatever it fell upon is the person's heart and it says sometimes the word of God it falls upon a person's heart and when it falls upon that picture of like a stony ground it basically there's no soil for the the seed to develop a root. And so what happens? That, tr- that tree, it sprouts up real quickly and then it withers out, it dies because it has no root sustaining it. And Jesus said, that's how some people, they respond to the word. They hear the word of God. They spend time in God's word. But in their hearts, it's like what? There's no room for the word of God to take root in their life. They may respond and be like, yeah, that's what I need. They may leave church on a Sunday and they're like, man, that is what I needed to hear. I'm ready to go, but there's no depth there. There's no depth. There's people that the Bible says it falls and then the thorns choke it out. And that's a picture of what? That's a picture of the cares of the world, Jesus says, and the desire for riches. And how many times have we come to church and we've heard the word? And then we've left and we get that phone call and it's that opportunity we've been waiting for, that investment opportunity or that job opportunity. And we're just right back at it. The cares of this world and the desires for riches, it does what it chokes the word out. 
You have those that just fall by the wayside. And then the Bible says that some seed, sometimes the word of God, when it bears fruit, listen, it falls on good ground, the Bible says. It's when the word of God, when you read it or when you listen to a study and your heart is open and it's soft and you're ready, you're like, God, I want to hear your word. I, I want your word to change me. I want you to speak to me. And what does the word of God do? It bears fruit. It works in your life. It changes you. See, it all boils down to your heart and where your heart is at with God. See, knowledge, it should lead to growth. Knowledge should not lead to pride. We should not become puffed up with our knowledge. What, Like Paul, we should be growing. And then you're able to walk in love because why? You're growing closer to God and like what the Bible says, he who abides in him walks like him. And he who spends time with God walks like God. Now he talks about this in kind of just this final thought here. He talks about this. He says, He says, however, there is not in everyone this knowledge. Some people, they're still growing. They haven't grown yet, he says. And they eat it and their conscience is what? Their conscience is defiled. You know, there are black and white sins that the Bible talks about. And then there are some things that are more gray areas, we would call them. They're more of what we would call a gray area. They're an area where maybe the Bible doesn't say black and white, hey, this is a sin or this isn't a sin. It's more of a gray area that we have. And how do we deal with gray areas? I love it because the Bible just kind of lays it out very simple. And a gray area could be anything. Maybe you were raised and you, your tradition that you were raised in in the church, maybe you were taught that something was wrong. And maybe it's more traditional. It's not really biblical. I shared a story a couple of weeks ago about a... So we used to work... When I was working with the youth at our old church, we used to go to this retreat center. But it was run by a different denomination, and I don't remember the denomination, but they wouldn't allow us to bring drums. Because as part of their denomination, their denomination taught that drums and rock music was more kind of satanic in inspiration. And so we weren't allowed to bring drums. We could only use the little cajon, right? There's some things that are traditional. It's interesting. I don't know how many, how many of you guys like to dance. Any dancers here? Some people, okay. My wife, she loves to dance. We always make fun. I don't dance because I can't dance. <laughs> and... Uh, but dancing, it's fun. If you know how to do it, it's fun, right? Well, there are some traditions that when you're brought up in that tradition, dancing is shunned upon. There's different things like that. Believe it or not, some traditions, going back to the 1800s, the big thing in that time was the theater, going to see a play. And believe it or not, some traditions looked at it as like, this is absolutely wrong. So there's all these different traditions, and a lot of times those things, they fall on gray areas. There's no black or white like that thou shalt not dance. Like There's, <laughs> there's none of those things. And, but sometimes we can look at that, and maybe you were raised in a certain tradition where you were like, man, you know what? Dancing is bad. I, I, shouldn't, I can't dance. Or maybe you were raised in a tradition where you were like, you know what? Rock music's bad. I can't listen to rock music. And maybe for me, I may be able to, 
I'm not going to say dance, I'm going to say try to dance. <laughs> but maybe I dance and maybe I don't think anything of it. I don't think anything of it. It doesn't mess with me. But maybe for you, you try and dance and what happens? Immediately you feel guilty. You feel like you've sinned. Your conscience is affected. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, hey, he says, everyone's in different places. Everyone has different feelings on things. And just because maybe someone doesn't feel and that they have the same freedom that you do, that doesn't mean that they're any less or anything. It's just different. And how do we deal with those gray areas? How do we navigate those gray areas? I think it's all about our attitude towards them. And it starts with this. is in the attitude is it's not about you. Man, some people become so arrogant with their liberties. It's like, well, I have the freedom to do that. I don't care what people think of me. I have this freedom. People can become so puffed up. People can become so prideful. And that's why he starts out at the beginning of this chapter. He says, concerning things offered to idols, he said, knowledge puffs up. He says, but love edifies. He says, you're maybe resting on your liberty and your knowledge and your freedom. He says, but that's not the attitude you want to have. You want to have an attitude of what? Of love. Understanding that someone may not have the same liberties as you do. And rather than walking in pride and saying, well, I have this liberty, and if you don't have it, well, you're, you're not going to tell me what to do because this is my liberty. This is my Christian liberty. Rather than walking like that, the Bible says that we are to walk in love and to put others first. And we are to walk in love and to put others first. And then he says there, and he just kind of sums it up in closing. He says, verse 8, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So he's basically just reminding me, saying, hey, like, listen, what you eat doesn't make you more holy. I remember hearing a story of a pastor when he was going through Bible college, and he said one night a bunch of the guys from his dorm, they went and they got a bunch of snacks. They got a bunch of ice cream and they made ice cream sundaes. And he remembers that one of the guys got up and prayed before they partook of this snack and asked the Lord to bless it. And he said he remembered looking at all of the ice cream in there and he said, you know what? He's like, he's like there's no way that God could bless us for eating that. He said, where? he said, I don't even know why we're praying for this. That God would bless the meal. He says, this is bad for us. Like, this, this is not okay. Like, God won't bless this. Like, he, he'll allow us to eat it, but he won't bless this. I'm all for ice cream sundaes. I'm just saying. Like, I just got to put that out there. Like, I am all for ice cream sundaes. But listen, what we eat doesn't make us more holy or not. He says, hey, he says, maybe someone eats meat, maybe they don't. That doesn't make us more holy. That doesn't commend us to God. We're not better if we eat or worse if we don't. And then he says in verse 9, he says, but beware lest somehow this stumbling block of your, this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. He hits it right on the head. Listen, Christian liberty, the biggest danger is that maybe you have a liberty to do something and you feel that you have that freedom, but, what, but someone else can be stumbled by it. It's literally a stumbling block. It is what it says it is. It would be like if someone was walking and you put something in their path. Maybe you put like a, something that they wouldn't see and they're walking and they what? They trip. 
They trip and they fall. It's a stumbling block. And he says, listen, he says, your liberty, it can become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Maybe someone who doesn't feel the same way and they see you doing that. It can cause them to trip. It can cause them to fall. It can cause their relationship with God to be affected. He says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he says, Will not the conscience of him who is emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Now what's he saying here? He's saying, hey, let's say you have the liberty to eat meat and you're in a temple and you're partaking of, an, of, a, of meat that's been offered to idols. And for you, you're like, hey, it's no problem. It's just the idol's nothing, meat's nothing, that's no problem. But someone sees you doing it and what do they do? They say, well, he does it, so maybe I'm okay to do it. And then they go and do that, and what happens? Maybe they came out of a background of idol worship, and they get pulled back into the idol worship practices. Now all of a sudden you have someone who maybe they stayed away, and maybe now they're getting involved in that thing, and for them, it caused them to veer, it caused them to drift. That is the biggest danger with Christian liberty. That is the biggest danger is that your freedom and your liberty, it can cause someone to stray or to drift or to fall. It can become a stumbling block. And that's why he says in verse 12, he says, But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, he says what? He says, you sin against Christ. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, he says, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Listen, how do we deal with those Christian liberties? How do we deal with them? Because listen, there are going to be things that will happen where you will feel like you have that freedom. You feel like you have that liberty. Again, knowledge puffs up, but love does what? Love edifies. It builds up. And regardless of what knowledge you have, regardless of if you know or you feel that something is okay, listen, you have to be careful because your freedom, you exercising your freedom can stumble someone else. And it's important that we have an attitude of love. Why? Because that will keep you from stumbling someone else. Because listen, maybe your liberty isn't a sin, but stumbling someone else is a sin according to what we just read. And so, Christian liberty, with great freedom, does come some responsibility. And with great freedom does come a warning. And with great freedom comes an encouragement that, hey, we have this freedom, but God also desires us to walk in love so that we don't stumble someone else. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for your word, your grace, Lord, your truth. Lord, I pray that, God, may you just speak to us this week. Father, I pray that you would just give us a hunger and a desire to know you more. Lord, may we know you. May we not, uh, Father, pull back from you. Lord, I pray that if we're dealing with things that we don't want to give to you, Lord, if we're if there's areas of our heart, of our life, Lord, that we're holding back, 
Father, maybe things that we're holding on to, Lord, that you're calling us to let go of. Lord, I pray that you would just convict us throughout this week. Lord, may we not hide from you, Lord, but may we come to you, Lord, knowing that, uh, Father, you love us. And Lord, you desire to help us, Father, in the areas that we're weak in. Lord, I pray that you would be with us in the difficulties, Lord, the areas that we struggle in, Lord. May you help us. Father, may you be with those here, Lord, that are just struggling, Father, with anything, Lord, whether it be a depression, Father, whether it be, uh, Lord, finances, Lord, whether it be guilt. Lord, maybe their conscience is affected constantly by things, Lord. I pray that you would speak to them, Lord. And as they go throughout this week, God, I pray that, Lord, may they and may us, Lord, may myself, may we know your freedom. May we be able to experience that freedom in Christ, that joy in Christ. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. And in Jesus' name, amen.